listening to TGTM News number 92, recorded for Wednesday, March the 27th, 2013. You are listening to the Tech Only Hacker Public Radio Edition. To get the full podcast, including political commentary and other controversial topics, please visit www.talkgeektome.us. Here are the vile statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in Deep Geek Talk Geek to Me. Hello again, everybody. This is Pokey with the Tech News Roundup. From EFF.org, dated March 20th, 2013, by Peter Eckersley and Seth Schoen. Defend the open web. Keep DRM out of W3C standards. There's a new front in the battle against digital rights management, or DRM, technologies. These technologies, which supposedly exist to enforce copyright, have never done anything to get creative people paid. Instead, by design or by accident, their real effect is to interfere with the innovation, fair use, competition, interoperability, and our right to own things. That's why we were appalled to learn that there is a proposal currently before the World Wide Web Consortium's HTML5 Working Group to build DRM into the next generation of core web standards. The proposal is called Encrypted Media Extensions, or EME. Its adoption would be a calamitous development and must be stopped. In the past two decades, there has been an ongoing struggle between two views of how Internet technology should work. One philosophy has been that the web needs to be a universal ecosystem that is based on open standards and fully implementable on equal terms by anyone, anywhere, without permission or negotiation. This is the technological tradition that gave us HTML and HTTP in the first place, and epoch-defining innovations like wikis, search engines, blogs, webmail, applications written in JavaScript, repurposable online maps, and a hundred million specific websites that this paragraph is too short to list. The other view has been represented by corporations that have tried to seize control of the web with their own proprietary extensions. It has been represented by technologies like Adobe's Flash, Microsoft's Silverlight, and pushes by Apple, phone companies, and others towards highly restrictive new platforms. These technologies are intended to be available from a single source or to require permissions for new implementations. Whenever these technologies have become popular, they have inflicted damage on the open ecosystems around them. Websites that depend on Flash or Silverlight typically can't be linked to properly, can't be indexed, can't be translated by machine, can't be accessed by users with disabilities, don't work on all devices, and pose security and privacy risks to their users. Platforms and devices that restrict their users inevitably prevent important innovations and hamper marketplace competition. The EME proposal suffers from many of these problems because it explicitly abdicates responsibility on compatibility issues and let websites require specific proprietary third-party software or even special hardware and particular operating systems, all referred to under the generic name Content Decryption Modules, or CDMs, 
and none of these specified by EME. EME's authors keep saying that what CMDs are and do and where they come from is totally outside of the scope of EME, and that EME itself can't be thought of as DRM because not all CMDs are DRM systems. Yet, if the client can't prove it's running the particular proprietary thing the site demands and hence doesn't have an approved CDM, it can't render the site's content. Perversely, this is exactly the reverse of the reason that the World Wide Web Consortium exists in the first place. WC3 is there to create comprehensible, publicly implementable standards that will guarantee interoperability, not to facilitate an explosion of new, mutually incompatible software and of sites and services that can only be accessed by particular devices or applications. But EME is a proposal to bring exactly that dysfunctional dynamic to HTML5, even risking a return to the bad old days before the web of deliberately limited interoperability. Because it's clear that the open standards community is extremely suspicious of DRM and its interoperability consequences, the proposal from Google, Microsoft, and Netflix claims that, quote, no DRM is added into the HTML5 specification, end quote, by EME. This is like saying, we're not vampires, but we are going to invite them into your house. <laughs> Proponents also seem to claim that the EME is not itself a DRM scheme. But specification author Mark Watson admitted that, quote, Certainly, our interest is in cases that most people would call DRM, end quote, and that implementations would inherently require secrets outside of the specification's scope. It's hard to maintain a pretense that EME is about anything but DRM. The DRM proposals at the WC3 exist for a simple reason. They are an attempt to appease Hollywood which has been angry about the Internet for almost as long as the web has existed, and has always demanded that it be given elaborate technical infrastructure to control how its audience's computers function. The perception is that Hollywood will never allow movies onto the web if it can't encumber them with DRM restrictions. But the threat that Hollywood could take its toys and go home is illusory. Every film that Hollywood releases is already available for those who really want to pirate a copy. Huge volumes of music are sold by iTunes, Amazon, Magnitude, and dozens of other sites without the need for DRM. Streaming services like Netflix and Spotify have succeeded because they are more convenient than piratical alternatives, not because DRM does anything to enhance their economics. The only logically coherent reason for Hollywood to demand DRM is that the movie studios want veto controls over how mainstream technologies are designed. Movie studios have used DRM to enforce arbitrary restrictions on products, including preventing fast-forwarding and implementing regional playback controls, and created complicated and expensive quote-unquote compliance regimes for compliant technology companies that give small consortia of media and big tech companies a veto right on innovation. All too often, technology companies have raced against each other to build restrictive tangleware that suits Hollywood's whims, selling out their users in the process. 
But open web standards are an antidote to that dynamic, and it would be a terrible mistake for the web community to leave the door open for Hollywood's gangrenous anti-technology culture to interfere with W3C standards. It would undermine the very purposes for which HTML5 exists, to build open ecosystem alternatives to all the functionality that is missing in previous web standards without the problems of device limitations, platform incompatibility, and non-transparency that were created by platforms like Flash. HTML5 was supposed to be better than Flash, and excluding DRM is exactly what would make it better. Take action to stop web DRM. There are links to this story on the EFF.org website. Uh, if you do a search for the, the title of the story, Defend Open Web, Keep DRM Out of W3C Standards, uh, you'll find that, or you can look for the link in the show notes. From Democracy Now! Dated 3-19-2013. Hacker who revealed AT&T security flaw gets 3.5 years in prison. A hacker who leaked email addresses from an AT&T web server to a journalist in an effort to expose the company's security vulnerabilities has been sentenced to three and a half years in prison. 27-year-old Andrew Ornheimer, nicknamed Weave, found a flaw in AT&T's server in 2010 that allowed him to gather 114,000 email addresses of iPad users. He gave the information to the website Gawker, which posted a redacted version. After a federal probe, Ornheimer was convicted of identity theft and conspiracy to access a computer without authorization. On top of the prison term, he has been ordered to undergo three years of supervised release and pay more than $73,000 in restitution to AT&T. He was charged under the controversial Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the same law used by federal prosecutors to target the late cyber activist Aaron Schwartz, who committed suicide in January, just weeks before his trial for downloading a trove of academic articles. Last week, Reuters social media editor Matthew Keyes was indicted under the same law. Keyes is accused of providing login information to the hacker group Anonymous that allowed them to alter the text of a headline on the website of the Los Angeles Times. Keyes, who is 26, could face up to 25 years in prison. From TechDirt.com by Mike Masnick Dated Wednesday, March 20th, 2013 MIT and Aaron Schwartz's lawyers argue over releasing evidence. From the Who's Hiding What department Last Friday, Aaron Schwartz's lawyers asked the court that had been overseeing his case to lift a protective order on materials submitted during discovery, which Schwartz's family and lawyers say will help to show how bogus the case against him was and, which they've hinted, will show how MIT went way too far in trying to help the prosecutors go after Schwartz. According to exchanges between Schwartz's lawyer, Elliot Peters, and MIT staff, including MIT President Raphael Reif, MIT has argued that such documents should not be revealed because a. it might violate the privacy of MIT employees and b. because MIT never intended the info to be public. Peters discovered this after a reporter for the Wall Street Journal forwarded him the following statement from MIT. Quote, the decision to lift the protective order rests with the judge who put it in place. Documents provided by MIT in the Schwartz case included individual names and information regarding MIT employees. 
It is MIT policy and practice to protect employee privacy. MIT provided the documents under the express understanding that they would be protected from disclosure, which is the purpose of the protective order. Given this, we are concerned about any public release of information about individual MIT employees. We will seek to protect their privacy. At the same time, MIT is eager to share important facts about the actions in the Aaron Schwartz matter with the public. Professor Hal Abelson has been charged by President Raphael Reif with conducting an analysis that will be made public in the coming weeks." End quote. Peters, quite reasonably, found this statement to be absurd, especially the part about MIT claiming that it provided documents in the belief that they would be kept secret. As Peters noted in response, this was obviously untrue. Quote, this statement is an insult to my intelligence. The documents were provided to the government before any protective order was entered, and directly contrary to this statement, with the express understanding that they would be used in a criminal prosecution, which would lead to a public trial, at which time the documents would be offered into evidence and the witnesses would testify in public. MIT never could have expected these materials not to become public, and I find this statement to be shockingly misleading and insincere. End quote. Around this same time, the Congressional investigation into Schwartz's prosecution required the same information. Given that, Schwartz's legal team met with the DOJ to discuss releasing the documents currently under protective order. They agreed to redact certain personal information, phone numbers, emails, home addresses, social security numbers, birthdays, as well as the names of four people who were questioned during the investigation, but who, quote, were not actively involved in either the government's or any institution's investigation, end quote, into Schwartz. However, where the conversations broke down was over redacting the names and info of just about everyone else, law enforcement, MIT employees, and JSTOR employees. Schwartz's lawyer argues that this information should be public, and if the case had gone forward, would have been public. Criminal proceedings in our nation's courts are presumptively public. As described above, the circumstances in this case have changed dramatically, perhaps most obviously with Mr. Schwartz's death. There is no longer a case to prosecute, and thus no danger that disclosure will impede a fair trial. Mr. Schwartz's tragic death has also led to an increase in public interest in both the details of the investigation and prosecution and the reasonableness of prosecutions under the CFAA, generally. In its discussions with Mr. Schwartz's counsel about modifying the protective order, the government has not to date asserted any reliance interest based on the protective order. Even if it were to assert such an interest, any government reliance on the protective order's terms is tempered by the fact that it is a blanket order and therefore inherently over-inclusive. As the district explained in Bulger, modifications of such a blanket order is not unusual. ID at 54. As a result, the only interest left to be balanced against the significant public interest in access to unredacted documents is the alleged privacy interest of the government employees and third-party individuals named in the discovery materials. For the reasons discussed below, those interests are minimal and are overcome by the public interest in the disclosure of these documents.
The further note that hiding the names of those actually responsible will make the congressional investigation into what happened much more difficult. Second, the information was provided initially without any expectation that this info would be kept private. So to ask for it to be kept private now makes little sense. In fact, they note that most of the people named, who the government and MIT wish to redact, were likely potential witnesses had the trial been able to move forward. Quote, Consequently, MIT and JSTOR cannot now claim any reliance interest on behalf of their employees in the continued privacy of their emails. At the time, they produced the emails at issue to the government. End quote. They further point out that most of the names in question are already public, and highlight press accounts and previous releases of documents in the case that specifically name, quote, MIT employees Dave Newman, Paul Acosta, Ellen Duranso, Ann Walpert, Mike Halsale, and Mark Silas, and JSTOR employee Brian Larson, identifies their positions and quotes their email communications, end quote. Given that this is already public, it seems odd to further seek to redact their participation. The argument in the other direction is that the attention this case has received means that the names of such folks might lead to threats. But Schwartz's lawyers say that there has been no evidence presented of any threat to MIT or JSTOR employees. And even if there was, that wouldn't necessitate blocking out info on all such employees. Separately, his lawyers point out that redacting law enforcement officials' names makes even less sense given that they are public employees. Days after this motion was filed, MIT, quote-unquote, responded by agreeing to release the documents itself, but with those same redactions requested by the DOJ. MIT President Reef has tried to spin this as being, quote, in the spirit of openness balanced with responsibility, end quote. Of course, that doesn't make much sense. The DOJ has already agreed that this is the same level of information should be released, so MIT isn't doing anything here other than make it appear falsely, as if it was making some concession towards openness. On top of that, MIT has said it will not release this info until its overall investigation is over. Not surprisingly, Schwartz's family is not particularly impressed by all of this. In a statement provided to us by Schwartz's girlfriend, Taryn Steinbrickner Kaufman, notes that this is misleading not just because MIT isn't doing anything new here, but also in that this isn't MIT's decision at all. Quote, I welcome President Reef's commitment to transparency. However, this announcement is misleading. MIT does not get to decide in what form the evidence is released publicly. The judge does. MIT has already given this evidence to the courts at which point it gave up proprietary control over the evidence. President Reef's decision simply foreshadows the inevitability that the judge will release at least this much of the evidence. It sets a low bar, but does not decide the matter. The redacted documents MIT is releasing only tell one part of the story. Huge amounts of information would still be hidden beneath the protective order information that MIT's investigators themselves will not have access to unless the protective order is lifted. If MIT is really committed to transparency and having a full, complete investigation, they need to join the call with Aaron's lawyers to lift the protective order." End quote. Similarly, Aaron Schwartz's father, Robert Schwartz, noted that this is not a concession by MIT, and that MIT already gave up its rights to these documents so trying to control how they are disseminated makes little sense. 
Quote, it is not a change in MIT's position. MIT could have no expectation of privacy or security since the evidence was given to the government with the understanding that it was evidence in a public trial, end quote, said Robert Schwartz, Aaron's father. Quote, they understood when they gave these documents to the government that they had no right to privacy or security. MIT should release all internal communications related to this case, whether or not they were provided to the government, including all internal communications they had related to how they handled it and decided not to ask the government to drop the case, end quote. Steinbrickner Kaufman also pointed out that, quote, if MIT wishes to protect these people's privacy, MIT should not have become involved in the criminal trial to begin with. They made a calculated decision not to nip this case in the bud. They don't get to avoid the consequences now after Aaron's death, end quote. For links to many of the filings and communications in this case, Please see techdirt.com. Uh, there'll be a link in the show notes. From torrentfreak.com by Andy, dated March 18th, 2013. RapidShare prepares to mass delete free user data over 5 gigabytes. RapidShare has announced a business model change that is causing panic among its non premium users. After offering unlimited storage space to customers using its free service, the Swiss based file hoster is about to implement tough new limits. This Wednesday, all free customers will be limited to just 5 gigabytes of free storage if they choose not to pay for a premium account. All excess files still hosted will be deleted forever, April 3rd. In today's super-connected world, we no longer have to store data solely on our desktop machines. We can now dump it into the cloud and access it seamlessly from any of our devices, no matter where we are. It's convenience on a grand scale but one that brings new concerns on the flip side, a lack of control over our own data. In the wake of the mega-upload fiasco, today we bring news of another event with the potential to chip away further still at Internet users' confidence in remote storage. RapidShare is one of the best-known brands in the file-sharing space. In recent times, the company has gone to extreme lengths to update its image and has undertaken a number of business model modifications in order to turn its back on the people who might use its services to infringe copyright. Nevertheless, the service has remained popular, not least because it offers unlimited storage space to both free and paid users. As a result, many people choose RapidShare to host their personal backups. However, the company has delivered a surprise announcement that will largely put an end to the unlimited free party. This is how it works. If you have a free account at RapidShare with currently unlimited storage, from this Wednesday, you will only be allowed to store a total of 5 gigabytes. If you do nothing, then all your files stored at RapidShare over the 5 gigabyte limit will be deleted on April 3rd. Just to be crystal clear, if you currently have 20 gigabytes of files, 15 gigabytes will be deleted. Quote, if you exceed your storage space limit, you will receive a warning email that files will be deleted, end quote, RapidShare warns. Quote, if you don't add storage space within the next 24 hours or delete some of your files, we will delete files. This happens at midnight, 2400 hours CET, end quote. However, if free users want to, quote, add storage space, end quote, i.e., give RapidShare some money, they can keep their files. For 9.99 euros for 30 days, or 99.99 euros per year, users can have 250 gigabytes of storage space. 
the 500 gigabyte storage account costs you 19.99 euros per 30 days or 199.99 per year. So what happens when users want to store more than 500 gigabytes? Tornfreak was told that a user asked RapidShare how much it would cost to host around 2 terabytes of files and was given a price of 120 euros, $155 per month. For less money, anyone can buy a real live hard drive, not just once, but every single month. While RapidShare is of course free to change its business model whenever it pleases, doing so on such short notice is a real wake-up call. The announcement of the new model was issued on March 12th and customers initially thought they only had until March 20th to pay up or have all files over 5 gigabyte limit deleted the next day. RapidShare have since confirmed an extension to April 3rd. It's also worth noting that free users may only personally download 5 gigabytes of data each day, so anyone with a large amount of files stored on RapidShare needs to get a move on in order to retrieve them all before the deadline. Needless to say, some paying customers are also unhappy with the changes and have been asking RapidShare for refunds. The company is processing those, but reportedly charging an administration fee of 15 euros. RapidShare has adjusted its business model several times in the last few months, and each time the changes appear to have resulted in less traffic for the site. The latest tactic isn't likely to reverse the trend. At the time of publication, RapidShare had not responded to Torrent Freak's request for comment. Please see the link on the website to torrentfreak.com for some related links and a uh, chart showing just how drastically Torrent Freak has affected its own business plan in the last couple of months. Uh, a couple of years, even. From techdirt.com by Mike Masnick, dated Wednesday, March 20th, 2013. Will people trust Google's new note-keeping service after Reader shut down? From the Not Sure I Will department. Interesting bit of timing here, as Google has announced a new service called Google Keep, which is a way of taking and keeping track of personal notes for your own use. It's basically an Evernote competitor. I use a variety of Google products, and normally this might not interest me, but I'm seriously having doubts about bothering following the abrupt shutdown of Google Reader. Is it worth entrusting data to a service that might be killed abruptly? It seems fairly bizarre to violate users' trust so much, and then days later ask for it right back. Obviously this doesn't apply to all services, but something that may become integral to the way someone works is something that people need to have confidence will remain in business for a while. In the past, people assumed that Google products would stay around because it's Google, and Google is so big. But with their recent actions, they've now definitely raised serious questions. And a quick look around Twitter shows that I'm not alone in asking the question. Almost everyone talking about this new service is asking why should we trust it not to be shut down? Google may have thought they were just killing off one product, but the ripple effects from shutting down Google Reader continue to spread. Please see the links in the show notes to techdirt.com for some links to some more related articles if you have interest in this. Other items in the news. To read these stories, follow the links in the show notes. Free speech activists oppose Iceland's proposed online pornography ban. Staffed and produced by the TGTM News Team. Editorial selection by DeepGeek. Views of the story authors reflect their own opinions and not necessarily those of TGTM News or its readers. News from TechDirt.com, HavanaTimes.org, MaggieMcNeil.WordPress.com, 
and allgov.com used under arranged permission. News from torrentfreak.com and eff.org used under permission of the Creative Commons by attribution license. News from Democracy Now! used under permission of the Creative Commons by attribution non-commercial no derivatives license. News sources retain their respective copyrights. Thank you once again for listening to Talk Geek to Me News. On behalf of myself and the rest of the Talk Geek to Me staff, please have a good day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. Here are the vital statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in DeepGeek. Talk Geek to Me. This episode of Talk Geek to Me is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 Unpoured License. This license allows commercial reuse of the work as well as allowing you to modify the work so long as you share alike the same rights you have received under this license. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.